Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and a special episode broadcast and produced from many different home offices that is a dedicated discussion of the impacts of the coronavirus on the world of real estate. The conversation is an interview with Spencer Levy, who's the chairman of the America's Research for CBRE. CBRE has been releasing a series of interviews real estate sector by real estate sector with Spencer and his colleagues. This conversation, in the spirit of leading voices, is a broad discussion across all sectors and thinking about the crisis from an immediate perspective, how we're coping through this lockdown period, an intermediate perspective, what it means after we get out of stay at home but prior to licking this bug, and long-term impacts after this bug is gone but long-term changes to how we do business since there will certainly be pandemics in our future. I hope that you're all coping as best as you can, staying safe and doing what you can for your businesses, employees, customers, community, and of course your own mental well-being. I asked Spencer in the podcast where he's sitting and what he's wearing Since so many of us are at home spending time on Zoom with both work and family, we are all windowing into each other's lives, homes, families, and sweatshirts through this work-at-home thing. It will likely last longer than we first imagined, and I'm guessing that the technology and rhythm of this might now have broken through and reached critical mass so that these windows, even after a return to the workplace, will continue. My daughter in particular is excited that this might be the death of white shirts and ties. At the risk of sounding kumbaya, we're experiencing that we are all in this together in our geographic communities, our work communities, nationally and indeed globally. We're experiencing that an infected person from a congressman to a CEO to your neighbor, office mate, family member, UPS driver or grocery store clerk each do really touch us. We're learning that others in actions are dangerous to us all and we're learning the importance of government and civic institutions to attack problems. Who knows how long this first phase of the lockdown will last? I will continue leading voices as planned during the coming months. I'm changing the programming a bit. We'll continue to release on Mondays, but as you'll see from this episode, we're off of our first and third Monday routine, so that the next episode will be a few weeks out. We will probably get another broad-thinking commentator like Spencer, to talk big picture, and we'll also go back to our real estate luminaries, but we'll definitely be driving into how businesses are coping with the crisis. Upcoming episodes will include Jody McLean from Edens to talk about the retail sector, and in particular around relief for impacted small businesses, their tenants, and Patricia Will from Belmont Senior Village. We all know the impact in the senior housing business. My thanks again to Spencer and CBRE for jumping in on very short notice into this conversation, to my team for keeping on keeping on, and my wishes for you all to stay safe, sane, and keep making a contribution out in the world. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. Please pass it along to a friend, and feel free to ping us back on our LinkedIn post or email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Enjoy this episode and stay safe, healthy, happy, and good luck, everybody. I'm reading a biography of James Brown right now, and he's the busiest guy in show business. Yeah. I am without a doubt the busiest guy in real estate over the last three weeks because I'm pretty sure I'm going to speak to 100,000 people, like literally, in a three-week period because you know my 8,000-person call today comes on the heels of my 15,000-person call that I had last week which comes on the heels of my 5,000 person call I had the other day. And it's just, it's just one after another, after another. So these calls, these podcasts are really important to me because I think there's no more important time to get the message into the marketplace than right now. And are these calls to so talk about that a little bit? And the message is in part coming from CBRE, but this is a message coming from you and the calls I've gotten invitations to are all sector by sector. And today we may compile on our conversation the multiple sector view, but just talk a little bit about kind of how you're communicating and the importance of that kind of communication. Sure. Before I go into how I see the market, I think in times like this, when nobody has the answer that everybody's looking for, and the answer that everybody is looking for is when is this going to end? And given that we don't have that, what we do have are comps from the looking back. Mm Mm-hmm. We have facts on the ground, which we can try to interpret, and then we have the day-to-day needs of what we want to do. So most of what I've done professionally over the last five or six years as I've 
led different parts of research, has been to talk about the future and forecasting and in the basic sort of ways that real estate professionals will do, looking at rents, occupancies, and the major asset types. Mm -hmm. But given the unprecedented nature of the distress that we're in today, people don't really want to talk about a year from now, two years from now. They want to talk about the next 90 to 120 days, which is a real switch for me, but makes it even more important to find the right comps, the right tea leaves to read to give the best advice you can to the marketplace. And I'm in a very fortunate but somewhat unusual position because I sit at sort of the intersection of the deals, the clients, the professionals. But because of my role, I am also speaking almost daily to the largest real estate advocacy groups in the industry who are speaking to the politicians who are making policy. And so I'm sort of at the intersection between the policy and the professionals. So I consider my responsibility to be enormously important to our industry. And so when I have opportunities like this to share the message, I can't think of anything more important that I can do. That makes total sense. And what you said a moment ago was that people are interested in the next 90 days. And I wanted to kind of think of this in three tranches, if even these three tranches are relevant. One is maybe the next 90 days, which is the immediate crisis. Two might be once we are not out of the immediate crisis, but we're out of homestay and maybe into some level of getting around, but we haven't solved this disease. And maybe that's a year, not 90 days, right? Or 18 months, who knows what that is. And then the third phase is there a readjustment long-term in the business. So it feels to me like that's kind of immediate, intermediate, and then long-term view of this. And I'll want your view on all of them, even though people are asking about what do I do with this second? Sure. Well, maybe to refresh this conversation, let's start from the long term Fair and deal. work our way back. Because I'd like to start from the long term because of the heat of the moment that okay. we're in right now. A lot of people believe that there have been secular shifts in our economy that are going to permanently change the way we use different forms of commercial real estate. I would say the two most common arguments I've heard recently about secular shifts are number one, in the office sector, where people think that the demand for office space may drop because people don't want to work in a traditional office anymore. Mm -hmm. And the other one that I've heard is that this is yet another nail in the coffin in bricks and mortar retail. Notwithstanding the heat of the moment, and people have shifted in the short term to buy more stuff on the internet by necessity, and notwithstanding that by necessity, people are not working in an office environment, retail and office today, retail and office 10 years from now, are a want, not a need. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that retail or office are going away. It means that they're going to have to continue to evolve to make them places that people want to be. And wanting to be there is a combination of making people happier, making people more productive mm -hmm. in the case of office. Uh, and in the case of retail, also dealing with similar types of human emotion of why you want to be there. There's some things you can only do at certain types of retail, like go to the gym as an example, or a bowling alley, unless you want to build a bowling alley in your basement, I suppose. But the reality is, is that this secular thoughts of today, I believe in many cases are overblown. But in some cases, I think they're correct. There have been some shifts today that I think have to be considered over the long term. So a lot of my thoughts right now come out of a report that CBRE just published about two weeks ago called the 2030 report, The Age of Responsive Real Estate. And what that report talked about were the 10 major trends that were going to influence our business the most over the next 10 years. And interestingly, two of the trends had to do with, number one, the fluid workspace. And number two, what's going to happen with retail with all this internet encroachment coming in? And so our report did talk about how the office space was going to change and how people were going to work in multiple environments. But I don't think anything like that has changed. I think basically we have a short-term problem today, which may have exacerbated it in the short term, but not the long term. But what will change in the long term are some of the assumptions that people are making in terms of things like their HVAC system in their building. Are we going to have to have a much higher quality type of airflow in the building, which would, of course, be more expensive so people don't have to keep recycling air if these types of pandemics become more common? Are people going to Swing the pendulum back on densification, meaning take more square footage for the average employee because people don't want to congregate on top of one another quite as much as they have recently where densification, meaning less square footage for employee, has been increasing over the last decade. Right. So I think for every trend that you might have in the 
people aren't going back to the office again thing, I can show you that, well, maybe the trend is going to be more office space, not less. So I'm sorry, you had a question. <laughs> well, so the question is thinking through kind of the immediate, what the heck do we do at this moment? And I want to go through sectors because it's going to be different per sector and the impact at this moment, what the impact over the summer and maybe the long haul before we settle down. And then you're looking out five, 10 years, do we do business differently? Of course we do. But I'm wondering how that business is reordered based upon this particular requirement that we've never had before. So maybe those are three ways to structure this. And before we get to talking through sectors, which kind of makes it real for real estate, let's let's stay at, at a higher level just for a few minutes and think about how this feels. So one comment is in my business over the last week, having been working from home, I'm having more conference calls and more Zoom calls and Zoom is our friend, right? We're not used to that. And that, that will have a long-term impact. It will change the nature of office space because people can use Zoom. So homework does work, not all the time. And let me ask you a silly question, but kind of relevant. Where are you sitting right now and what are you wearing? Well, I do a lot of uh, television work. I, I do television work. <laughs> I'm always very conscious of what I'm wearing from the waist up. Exactly. Because nobody can see you. you they can't see you wearing shorts or flip-flops. But uh, I'm wearing nothing uh, more elegant than sweaters and a, a pair of jeans and a pair of uh, Vans. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting in my house in Owings Mills, Maryland. Fair deal. And so I'm sitting in my TV room in Sonoma County, California. And we're, we're all remote. And it's funny because I was with clients this morning dress code shaving and everything else has changed at least temporarily it's a interesting dynamic and it may push envelopes in terms of more permanent interactions because we've seen it can work this way well and, and obviously I, everything's is, a pendulum because I, I remember the first time people went business casual was back in 1998 during the first tech rise and then there was the tech bubble and then everybody put a suit on again Right, and then we had this the rise going into 2008. People were getting casual. Then in 2010, everybody just put a suit on again. Yep. Don't be surprised if in a year from now everybody's wearing a suit again. I'll be surprised. <laughs> so we'll take a vote on that one. And another thing that's just interesting, and I'm 63, so I've been through this before, and there is a feeling in my body similar to the feeling a little bit the Gulf War, but I was almost a kid then but definitely the feeling from the readjustment of my expectations of day-to-day -day life after 9-11, the readjustment in my day-to-day -day life after the global financial crisis. Each of those were huge and lasted a long time. And the world felt upside down and really confusing. But I have some muscle memory from that. Any comments to, to this like those? Well, I lived through 9-11. I lived through the global financial crisis yep. and I remember the Gulf War well when it first came out. And in the heat of the moment, they all feel different levels of similar, of something's changed. Something big just happened. Mm -hmm. Something that I have never experienced before. And I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow because every time there's an incident, you don't know what impact it's going to have on your personal life. Or your professional life. And so I say the gut feeling is probably very similar. And it is because I've had this gut feeling before two, three, four times, just like yourself. But I don't, at this point, go with my gut. I go with my analysis. And I don't want to be cold hearted about this, but I'm looking at this as objectively as I can, using as many comps as I can, comparable transaction, comparable incidents, to try to read the tea leaves so I can best advise my clients on how to act. Mm -hmm. And so I may be uh, cold as ice when it comes to that type of point of view, but I can tell you my gut is swirling just like everybody else's right now. Yeah, but then once you take that longer-term view and the longer-term view, you, you know world the world does return to some level of normal with a, a ton of dislocation between now and then. That's right, and you don't know what's going to happen to the stock market. You don't know what's going to happen to when this virus is going to be under control and how do they define that it's under control and who makes that decision? And how's that going to have implication on your life? It's one thing for a party that's out of your control to make a decision, like to go to war in the Gulf War, as an example, since you brought up the example. Right. I didn't make that decision. I'm not going to agree, disagree. I'm not going to go into any of that stuff. But I had no control over it. And it was in a faraway land. 
mm-hmm. notwithstanding the fact that it had impact on the price of oil, it had impact on the stock market, it had impact on uh, our troops and obviously troops and civilians all over the world. So it had terrible implications, but I didn't see it, touch it, feel it. Right. This is the first one of these things that everybody is seeing it, touching it, feeling it. Even the global financial crisis, if you were a kid during a global financial crisis, you had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. You, you're a kid today, you have an idea what's going on, and you're never going to forget this. Everywhere in the globe, too. So different. This, this could be in Brazil, it could be in India, it could be in Europe, it could be in the Middle East, it could be among the ISIS clans in different villages. I mean, this, this will get to everywhere that way. Well, that's right. And so I think that's why the lingering impacts of this are going to be much more significant culturally, socially, than perhaps anything we've seen before, because it's across the globe Mm -hmm. and it's rich and poor and everybody's impacted. And so we'll all remember when. And remembering when isn't an incident like the Kennedy assassination that some people talk about. It's longer lasting than that. It will be. So another global question, then we're going to get to real estate, I promise. But it also, I think, has an effect on everyone in a huge way. But I'm one of the lucky ones that it has an effect on because I have a home. My family's all together. My kid's too old to go to school. She's in graduate school and taking all of her classes online. But I don't have eight-year-olds at home who have to be taken care of. And I'm thinking there's a disproportionate effect on the working class worker bee folks who may not have the internet connectivity, may not have the income flexibility to deal with a month of unemployment. Um, so the disproportionate effect's pretty meaningful out there, I think. Well, look, all of the world's problems, probably throughout history, have placed a disproportionate amount of the burden on the poor, on the working class, on folks that uh, don't have as much as everybody else. And it's a terrible thing. And, and this situation is no different. We're folks that are working class are disproportionately service workers that are going to lose 100% of their income, then I have to deal with childcare. So it's a, it's yet another example of how unfair it is around here when a big problem happens and the people who can least afford for them to be impacted are impacted the most. Absolutely true. So let's now play that through the lens of real estate and play that through the lens of the ways that this is affected in real estate, thinking both immediate term, midterm, and long term. So there's a lot to unpack here. And I'll pick the easiest sector, not one of the four food groups, but hospitality that's the most impacted at this moment. And any comments on that? How do they get through it? How does this realign when we get out the other end? So let's let's start there. Well, I'll say what I wish, and then I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> okay. What I wish is that there was some easy way to hit the reset button 90 or 120 days from now, right? from a financial point of view, from a psychological point of view. And I think to the credit of the Fed and the credit of the Treasury Department and, and global financial institutions around the world, the uh, central banks, that's what they're actually trying to do. They're actually trying to do exactly what I just said. Because if you take a look at the amount of stimulus that they put into the economy, it is larger than the amount of the downfall that people expect in the second quarter GDP in the US and globally by a lot. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's not only plugging that hole financially, but it's trying to create a big and deep enough pillow so that if people fall, they can bounce right back up again like a trampoline, like a V-shaped recovery. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're trying to do. And they might be able to do that to some degree financially. What they can't do, to your point, is they can't do that psychologically. Mm-hmm. They can't change your behavior and say on the day that they open up, people are able to no longer shelter in place. Are you going to go book a hotel room tomorrow? Are you going to go out to a restaurant tomorrow? Now, I bet you go out to a restaurant tomorrow because I am. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Before the hotel. Doubt, I'll make it a beeline for that. Okay. <laughs> but that's immediate demand. But hotels have demand that's based not only upon my leisure travel. It's based upon my business travel. And you know how long it takes me to set up my business travel? It takes months, sometimes a year in advance. And if it's conventions, it's years in advance. So there's going to be hotels are going to, they took it on the chin the worst now, and it's going to take a while for that demand to build back up again. But after some period of time, call it six months to a year after the end of the crisis, after the end of people being sheltered in place, I believe they will be back. Now, will there be some changes? Yes, there will be some changes. There'll be some changes in hotels, not dissimilar to some of the changes I'd suggested in offices. Maybe they have better HVAC systems. Maybe they change the way their common areas are. But I think that 
people are going to have different habits about hygiene and using hand sanitizers, things like that. And then I think the the newer buildings, the newer structures are going to have some of these newer systems in them. Some of the older ones are going to be just cleaner. From an operational using, standpoint. Yeah. This that's will right. change. And so I, I think what's going to happen is the day that the spigot opens again to let people out, it'll take hotels probably a good six months to get back closer to par. And then in a year, I would argue it will be close to back to normal. Mm-hmm. So let's stick with hotels for a minute. And you probably can't talk about specific companies, but I'll name them and you can give me a general answer back. Well, but, go ahead. But I'll be curious about how this affects Airbnb, which hasn't yet gone public. And that's now like a third of my both business and personal travel I do through something like Airbnb yeah. versus a Marriott, like a company that you can structure top down. So how does bottoms up versus top down affect and then also, how's the effect operationally? Where do you want to stay in a year and a half? Where do you feel safer? And then also, who makes it better through that pause button period of time? Well, look, I think all these, whether you call it for Airbnb or for VROB, vacation rental by owner, or have these owned by, you know, whatever, these all these companies, you know, I'm not going to comment on the companies themselves. What you're, you're commenting on is going to a hotel versus going to one of these, staying in somebody's apartment in, through a service. Um, I personally, I'm going to go to hotels. That's a convenience for me as a traveler, though I understand why some people like the the other model. And um, it's convenient. It's It's got a hipness factor to it. So I think that much like I think this too shall pass in terms of hotels getting back closer to baseline in about a year, mm-hmm. I think the entire business gets back to a baseline in about a year. And, and you might see some changes as it relates to some of the same factors I mentioned for hotels like hygiene and otherwise. I think the Airbnbs and VRBOs will have to have some kind of standards that they can promise that their individual homeowners or whatever they are, are promising to their customers. Before we leave hospitality, and it may be part of this, but you had mentioned this is a really good question is, you know, can you push the pause button and what kinds of companies are structured for a pause button to be pushed and what kind of companies go out of business and I think about cruise ships a lot. <laughs> They're going to have to come out the other end in a very different way because they've made the headlines so much. But big one on hospitality. Well, look, uh, I think even cruise ships come back. And I think the reason for that is that uh, people have shorter memories than you think. Yep. Uh, the headlines don't impact quite as many people as you think. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately people like to get a good deal. And I'm sure they're going to have to cut rates for a little while and get to build market share up again. But the cruise industry will come right back again. I've been on cruises and I go on a cruise again, notwithstanding the, uh, it sound, may sound, sound uh, reckless today. It's not. Uh, they'll be fine. Good. So talk about multifamily. And I'm thinking there's a lot of operational changes and maybe some short-term changes around some of the people who live there just can't afford to do it right now. But what comments on well, the I apartment did, sector? I just hosted a call about two hours ago uh-huh. with 8,000 industry participants, including borrowers, lenders, I'm sure tenants as well. Right. And the short-term disruption to the multifamily industry is not going to be quite as severe as you're seeing in hotels where it's the worst Yep. or malls that are shut down, which of course is the same as a shutdown hotel. But nevertheless, the stress is much more human, much more short-term, much more real because many of the tenants are some of these service workers that have lost their jobs Right. and they have to pay rent. And what do you do? So I'm really proud actually Uh, of our industry as a whole right now, uh, because I've never seen the industry work together in such a collaborative way in what is can be a dog-eat-dog world. Mm -hmm. And where it's coming together is that the, first of all, led by the agencies, the Fannie Mae's, the Freddie Mac's, uh, they made public announcements in the last 24 hours, allowing for forbearance of mortgage payments over the next 90 days or so, if you do not evict any of your tenants and you do other things to be Mm -hmm. tenant-friendly. That was quite a move. Yeah, And I, I was very pleased they did that, which may, it's not going to end the blow completely to landlords or to tenants, but it'll, it's a material softening of that blow, kind of going back to what I had said before about this big pillow that they put in place, which hopefully people can jump off of. So all that said, multifamily is going to face some short-term distress, mm-hmm. people losing their jobs, uh, unable to pay rent, which then filters to the landlords who have struggled to pay their mortgages. And fortunately for those people that have Fannie or Freddie backed mortgages, they have this forbearance program when they have a roadmap of how to do it. I also want to give a shout out to the FDIC, which gave a, while it did not give explicit permission for forbearance, 
it did essentially say to its lending institutions that uh, you are to be as accommodating as you can be. And so uh, many banks now are uh, being very accommodative to borrowers as well. I think the one area that's going to feel more distress is in the conduit area, the CMBS area, where I don't know that the lending documents permit well, the same type of flexibility as you're seeing with Fannie, Freddie, or the banks. Mm-hmm. And think longer term in terms of multifamily, where because I spend half of my time. So that's the we care a lot about that industry. And one of the before this crisis, we were dealing with a rent control crisis or overregulation or regulation around that. We're also dealing with lack of supply and trying to change the discussion out among the population that maybe building a density is a good thing. And those problems don't go away through this crisis. And I wonder if we come out the other end of this with a better public perception to enable development or a better public perception to, I guess, a supply issue. Any any thoughts about that longer term view on this? Well, let me talk longer term and I'll work my way back. Fair deal. Because longer term, we just came out, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, with a report called the CBRE 2030 report. Uh And the 2030 report talked about how multifamily is our number one asset class investment idea for the next decade. And why is it our number one asset class if you go into the five major asset classes? Well, there's both macro and micro reasons for that. The micro reasons for that is that the average tenant likes the gig economy. The gig economy is rising. They like the flexibility of living in a multifamily unit. They're having kids getting married later in life so they can have that flexibility. And many of them are saddled with student debt, so they can't afford a down payment. And the equity engine that was supposed to occur in single-family homes really hasn't come to pass, certainly in the last decade or more. That, plus the fact that multifamily is still a rising asset type in Europe, where uh, because of some of the issues that you mentioned a moment ago, because of overregulation for many years, there really wasn't a private for rental market in Europe. And so the short story is that the best friend of the multifamily market. And this is not me as some cold-hearted capitalist, okay? Mm -hmm. Because I'm going to go full tail the other way on affordable housing in just a moment, is to allow free market rental housing. Because if you start over-regulating it, what you're going to do is you're going to crimp supply, like you've seen in Portland, Oregon, where they change the local zoning ordinances to when you build, you have to have a certain amount set aside for affordable, which just basically stopped all new developments in its tracks. What you saw recently in other places where they added new rent control laws, which basically diminish the value of existing product, stop people renovating existing product. The only solution that I believe works for the affordable housing side, if I'm going to go off on a little tangent here, is more supply. And how do you get more supply? You have looser zoning restrictions that allow you to go vertical in more places. I use an expression, the sky is the solution. Having more vertical affordable housing is the solution. And Minneapolis, I'll give them a shout out, actually implemented a solution just like that about a year ago, where they changed Mm -hmm. the zoning laws in Minneapolis so that if you're in a single family area, you can now go vertical to several more stories, which will increase density, which is great. And this is not to throw California under the bus, but I will just be explicit about this. When Article 50 did not pass last year in the California state legislature, which would have done exactly the same thing, allowing you to go vertical near transit-oriented development in suburban locations, it was a very big loss for the affordable housing movement. All true. Now, of course, that was going to be conventional housing that would have helped affordable housing or helped that population. Do you think the crisis helps present the case or changes public behavior or politicians' behavior to then foster that kind of development growth or densification? And densification now sounds like a scary word because I'm scared of being close to anybody. Well, I think the the term that you didn't say, but I'm just going to say it is called nimbyism, not in my backyardism. Yep. Is not in my backyardism going to get worse because of the coronavirus? Yep. The short answer is absolutely yes, because there's already been a fear of the other, and that fear of the other is only going to get worse in the short term. And so that anybody who wants to put higher density housing in their area, uh, there's going to be this. But look at the coronavirus thing as yet another weak excuse not to allow people that are that have less than them be in their communities. Uh, I have no sympathy, empathy or otherwise for people who want to keep affordable housing out of their communities. The only solution is to have a greater integration 
of the haves and the have-nots because the single biggest problem in America today is an empathy gap. And I'm hardly in the minority on that. The haves don't like the have-nots. The have-nots don't like the haves. And that gap is only getting wider. The only way to bring that gap together is for people to live in the same communities. I'm with you 100%. And let's keep going across our universe here. We can get stuck on multifamily, my favorite topic, but let's let's keep moving and we'll come back to all this. So talk about retail. Sure. So I'm going to tell you something that just cut into the chase here. My wife owns a small business right now. Uh, I'm very proud of my wife because uh, I think anybody who has a small business works a lot harder than uh, maybe their paycheck reflects. And she owns a physical therapy practice right now that she had to shut down in the short term, right. hopefully in the short term because of the coronavirus. And what are we going to do? And so we're thinking about going to the small business administration for a loan, speaking to the landlord. I'm personally thinking about these issues Good. in the position of what I am today in, in order to assist my wife, who I'm, as I mentioned, extraordinarily proud of what she does. But that's now magnified across the entire retail universe today for places that are shut down. Right. What do you do? Right. And so I think we can't gauge the long-term health of the retail industry based upon this short-term shock. I don't think there's a secular shift there anymore than I believe there's a secular shift in the office space, as we talked about earlier in this conversation. I believe people are still going to go to retail. They're still going to go to bricks and mortar. And I think they're still going to go to gyms. And I think they're still going to go to restaurants. And I think they're still going to go to rock concerts and football games. Fair deal. And by the way, I'm going to be right there with them. Good. Is it a, sec- a short-term shock. But is it a secular shift that my Pilates guy or your wife or the restaurant down the street will have to be reinvented coming out of bankruptcy? Will they come back into the business? So half the tenants, I don't know the number, right? But it's going to be now, what you're what you're crazy. saying. What you're saying is the lagging effect of this horrible situation. The yep. lagging effect is so on the day that they open up the gates and people are allowed to go out of their houses again at will, you're going to see a lot of carnage on the street. And the carnage that's on the street are a lot of these retailers, particularly small businesses that either won't come back or just can't, just can't afford to come back. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take a while. So there's going to be a void in certain parts of retail for a while until these businesses can restart again. And I know what the government is trying to do today is to create this pillow, create this V-shaped recovery so that they can come back quicker. But uh, there's no doubt there's going to be short-term real pain in the business beyond just the opening gates. And I think that short-term pain might actually last in certain areas longer than the short-term pain that we're seeing in hotels. I bet that's true. And, And I would guess that the pillow that the government knows how to create is a pillow for owners of shopping centers easier than a pillow for owners of a small business that's really month to month in terms of its cash flow. Yeah. I mean, um, a small business clearly has a much greater hurdle, even if it's a smaller dollar amount, it's the relative dollar amount to the small business owner. That's generally a much bigger hurdle than it is for the landlord. Listen, I'm not in a hope business. I'm in the cold, hard reality business. Yep. And I hope that the cold, hard reality that we see in terms of the fiscal monetary support and landlords doing the right thing. This is a team effort here, folks. Yeah, yeah. I've seen, and I said it on my call, that adversity does not create character. Adversity reveals it. Mm-hmm. And right now, I'm in a very good place, almost a kumbaya kind of place between landlords and tenants, lenders and others, in a place I've never seen before in a business that historically has been perhaps a bit too adversarial. I hope that lasts well beyond this June 1st date that people bend over backwards to help out those folks that will really hit the hardest during this crisis. Yeah, and let's go back to cold-hearted versus kumbaya because they're in this together, right? You've seen it in the malls where some of the mall owners backing some of their major tenants. And I think you may wind up having the same thing with, you know, neighborhood retail Folks may have to be like VCs helping their tenants become successful and get back into business. That's both kumbaya, but that's, I think all kumbaya self, not all kumbaya. Kumbaya could be self-interest, right? Well, look, I believe that the government is going to have programs in place, notwithstanding the super bazooka that was shot by the monetary and fiscal authorities. Yeah. I'm confident that the government's going to have extraordinary programs in place for years to come to allow people to start small businesses as a small token to help people get back on their feet. Fair deal. Okay, let's keep going or else we, we will keep getting stuck. Industrial, this may be the easiest conversation, but maybe you'll surprise me. So what on that sector before we move on to harder ones? The industrial sector is probably going to be the most resilient sector 
in the current crisis. For all the reasons you'd believe, having to do with more people buying on the internet, providing some cushion for some loss in trade, because imports are a much bigger indicator of absorption than exports. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you're going to see even the big box warehouse distribution centers that have fallen off in demand, at least in the short term, bounce back very quickly and last mile have almost no impact because if anything, there's not enough of it. Right. And there's also not enough in certain categories. And I think one of the areas that we're seeing where there's clearly not enough of it is in cold storage, which is the movement of perishable goods, not just to restaurants, but to supermarkets. And what, what's happened recently, and I think what this crisis really represents is a crisis of efficiency. What does that mean? Now, one of the concepts I talk about all the time is the difference between efficiency and productivity, which is efficiency is doing the same with less, productivity is doing more with the same. But I think because we're so cost conscious, mm -hmm. because we've become overly focused on efficiency, there's another R word, or there's an R word I want to just bring into the conversation, resiliency. We've proven not to be resilient because we were too efficient. There was no excess storage capacity for food or for other things in the event that there was a material strain on the system. Yeah. And that's why the system broke. Yeah. And so this goes right back to this 2030 report, which I talked about before, which is among our many conclusions, one of the conclusions is that multifamily is going to be of the five major asset classes, the best asset class over the next 10 years. Another one of our conclusions, one of our chapters is entitled The Rise of the Asian Century. And why do we like the rise of the Asian century? Well, they have great demographics, a lot of Gen Zers, a lot of young people there. They have a lot of infrastructure. They also have great technology, and they also have a relatively good ease of doing business. Not only relatively good, Singapore and Hong Kong, in a recent study I just saw, I believe, from the Heritage Foundation, were ranked one and two. So they have all these great things going for it, plus their relative cost of labor is very inexpensive. Mm -hmm. So why shouldn't they win over the next decade or more? Well, they still should win, is the short answer. But does the pendulum swing a little bit back, bringing more manufacturing to places like the United States and Europe that are more expensive? Because what was proven during the crisis is that while they may be the most efficient choice, they are not the most resilient choice. And in a similar way that we talk about resiliency in the context of global warming and other environmental issues, we're now going to be talking about resiliency in supply chain, and that's going to bleed to the biggest corporations because they're going to be asked on earnings calls in the future how resilient is your supply chain. And mm -hmm. once that question gets asked a lot, they're going to start building more plants where they have backup, and that backup is typically going to be closer to home. Yeah, and backup costs money, so it's not efficient, but you got to have it. We certainly have it in the tech industry. So well, let me be clear. A little bit less efficiency is a good thing. And why is that, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm now paraphrasing Thomas Jefferson, who said, a little bit of revolution every now and then is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. But a little less efficiency is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Because you know why? Because it creates a little bit of inflation. And I've been on record on more podcasts like this than I can mention where I said the following. I said that not only do I think inflation is lower for longer, I think inflation is lower forever. And one of the main culprits of inflation being lower for longer or forever is innovation itself and efficiency. Things just keep getting cheaper. If things get a little bit more expensive, that's a good thing. But this also brings up a macro question. And what is the macro question? The macro question is because the Fed and the monetary authorities are pumping all of this money into the system, are we setting ourselves up for 1970s style inflation two years from now, a year from now? And my short answer is no. And I've had this debate with my close colleagues in the economics area. And the reason is this, is notwithstanding the fact the money supply got so much larger, there's so much liquidity in the system. Mm -hmm. There are these mega forces led by demographics that are going to put downward pressure on prices. Older folks, too much cheap oil, too much cheap labor, innovation itself are all putting this downward force while we have this great increase in the money supply, which is now putting upward force. And so, yes, will there be some upward force on inflation? Yeah, but I don't think it's going to be the kind of runaway inflation that we've seen in the 70s, nothing close to that. And I think the monetary system has ways to drain that money supply out of the system when it's necessary as well. And it may and it may quickly. So I would like to go down that path a little bit and talk about Asia, but I won't. So and the difference of government policies in our country versus their countries and their ability to just, pardon me on the podcast, get shit done. It may not feel good, 
but they, they're able to build a hospital in two weeks. I wanted to ask you that question because that's on my list of thinking about. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to enter that. Can I go there for just a second? Yeah. Because one of the things that I often debate on stage, and this is a tough one, but it's a debate that I've had more than once, is right. is democracy overrated? Uh-huh. How about that? Mm-hmm. And there's a terrific book on this by a professor in your neck of the woods by Josiah Ober. It's called Demopolis. He's a University of Berkeley professor, which talks about how democracy is actually not overrated, talks about how we need more of it, but that the tenor of what's happening certainly in the United States and definitely over in Asia is less of it, and maybe less of it's more efficient. And there are other people who have that point of view, and um, there's a guy named Alan Blinder, who Mm -hmm. was the co-chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and he wrote a book called Advice and Dissent. And his essential thesis in that book is that in addition to having monetary policy being largely divorced from politics through the Fed, he wants tax policy to be largely divorced of politics in its own separate little engine. And he's come out more recently in other areas of, should we have even less democracy by trusting technical experts rather than the people? And again, I'm not trying to be pejorative. These are his essential arguments. Mm -hmm. And while I don't like his arguments at all, because I believe that democracy isn't just a way for people to make decisions, Democracy has an essential dignity for the individual that I feel very strongly about. I think that every individual, no matter how smart, how rich, how poor, is one person, one vote, and that vote should be as equal as possible. So that, to me, is a a moral issue, not just a a ruling issue. At the same time, I'm the first to admit it's really inefficient. And its inefficiency shows up in places like China building a hospital during a pandemic or other things that have made many of the tech leaders go in front of Congress and say that China has a competitive advantage for innovation in the future. Mm -hmm. Totally agreed. And I would love to explore that topic too. (laughs) I'm going to keep us going. Last major food group, and then we'll talk about a couple of specialty sectors in real estate, office. And you went there a little bit earlier. And I will tell you, so one of the earlier podcasts is with Jamie Hadari, who is the CEO of Industrious. And we've become tenants of Industrious, my 10-person company, or four of us in my office in San Francisco. And I got nervous in the last week because I was one of the 20% still at the office, but I love being there. So it's a wonderful environment as compared to a three- or four-person office for a small business signing a five-year lease. So I have an opinion on the subject. But talk about office, how that changes, because there may be some longer-term effects on this business, and maybe how it affects co-working, which has been a headline. And not just WeWorks, because they're screwed up. But Well, look, uh, I'm not going to comment on WeWork per Thank se, you. but in the short term, co-working is going to face some strain because short-term tenants are obviously thrown out of the space for the yep. time being. Yep. And just like it takes time to ramp up demand for hotels, it's going to take time to ramp up demand for co-working space again. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the bad news. Here's the good news. That demand's going to get ramped up again because there are things that make working in a group environment, even with other companies, a terrific place to work, which is why I think co-working has terrific legs over the long term, notwithstanding its current distress. Now, are you going to see some changes in the design of co-working? Probably. You're probably going to see some more private areas, maybe not as many common areas. I mean, the same thing you're going to see in regular office. See better HVAC systems. But overall, co-working has got a very bright future, even though its current state of affairs, uh, they're in the same boat as hotels and retail that can't operate. So uh, I don't think that fundamentally changes, no. But what I do think fundamentally changes in the office space is that you are going to see things like better HVAC systems. Mm -hmm. And I do think you may, in fact, see the pendulum swing back into more square footage for the average employee. So there is a little bit more space. And this fluid workplace concept of people being able to work in their office, work from home, work in the back of their self-driving car is only going to get more important as transportation and communication get faster and better. So I'll give you one statistic uh, for a guy who doesn't quote a lot of statistics for you. Right now, about two-thirds of all Americans drive to work in their own private vehicle. Mm-hmm. To me, that is maybe the single biggest waste of time <laughs> in the history of the world. Right. That's the bad news. The good news is in 10 years, we estimate it to be about 51%, so 15% more demand, either from self-driving cars or otherwise, that people can actually be efficient on the way to and from work. Right. And so that is where the fluid workplace comes in, because when you're sitting in the back of your self-driving car, is that the workplace, or is it your office when you get there, or is it the Starbucks down the street? They're all the workplace. They are all part of the fluid workplace. Uh And we're proving 
the ability of the fluid workplace to be part of our resiliency right now. So the technologies are leaping forward in terms of adoption at an amazing rate all of this all of a sudden. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a somewhat, um, I don't know, this question probably comes out of like the twilight zone. Yeah. But because of where we are technologically today, uh-huh. we can be a lot more resilient from a working perspective because of Zoom, because of other forms of technology, computers, et cetera. And because of that, maybe the hit to the economy wasn't nearly as bad today as it would have been, let's say, 30 years ago if this exact same pandemic happened. Let's assume that to be the case, right? right. But then again, then you have to think, did technology in any way foment some of the things that are happening today? Did it change the way that politicians decided to make their decisions about how to essentially shut down the whole economy? Was Is it, is it all based upon medical fact or is it based upon some politics? Right. And what was exacerbated in some way by the same technology that makes us more resilient. So like a lot of other arguments, technology is great, but it it cuts both ways in ways that we can't quite see. Absolutely true. And we're going to put a pin on that and come back to that as one of the last questions, because I want to ask you about globalization and it's game over on globalization. Don't answer the question. We both have opinions on that. But let's just do a couple of specialty sectors just to think about the impact of real estate. My mother lives in seniors housing and oh my God, they're impacted. Right. Operationally, I think of operations as well as investments, but operationally, that sector has to figure this out big time and spend some dollars that they weren't planning to spend. Comments about that, and we'll do data centers and self-storage, a couple of others quickly. Well, the good news is I'm not the only guy here who has to vote. (laughs) The people that vote are the people who buy publicly traded stocks. And you can see, and based on our call that we had this morning, and we had a um, analyst from a big investment bank on there that senior housing has been by far the most negatively impacted REIT sector, even though the whole REIT sector has gotten really hit hard in the last several weeks. And the reason it got hit the hardest is because seniors are regrettably the most vulnerable, apparently, to the coronavirus. Yeah. And so it impacts them today. You know, who's going to put their mom or dad into a senior housing place over the next three months, right? Or six months or 12 months. How long is demand going to be impaired in senior housing? Is it going to be impaired like it's impaired for cruise ships? Or less than that, more than that, longer than that, who knows, right? But there's some impairment because right. of the problems of today. But much like office buildings adapting by having better HVAC system, senior housing is going to adjust. It's not like the demand's going to go away. People are still going to get older. They're going to still need a place to live. And senior housing is a terrific option. I put my own grandmother into a senior housing facility and she lived there until she was 100. So the reality is that don't let the heat of the moment impact your long-term or secular point of view towards a particular asset class, which may actually create a buying opportunity when these folks do, as to your point, change some of their operational habits uh, as it relates to hygiene and people getting sick and things like that. But overall, I don't see senior housing going away. The only risk of senior housing, quite candidly, is that senior housing as an asset class historically has had more boom and bust cycles than others. Yep. It tends to get overbuilt at times. And the reason that it seems to have more boom and bust cycles than others is it's not just dependent upon some, you know, God forbid, another pandemic. It's really dependent upon whether or not people can sell their single family homes and move into it. And so when there's a bust in the single family home market, they lose demand for senior housing. Seek people to move into these units uh, is probably the single biggest indicator of uh, of long term demand. So I think senior housing is going to be fine, albeit it'll be operating at a higher cost in terms of how they operate the center. And labor uh, was already scarce to operate these types of facilities before this crisis. Yeah, interesting. So my mom moved into a Sunrise managed community about six months ago, and she is so happy she's not in her home in Wynwood, Pennsylvania, because if she was still home alone, having to have meals delivered and she can't drive anymore, she'd be in trouble, right? So she blesses every day, thanks God every day that she's in there, even though she's at bigger risk because of the concentration of folks. So, and operational changes in that business are going to be huge and they have to be as well as in other businesses. Talk about two others, then we'll move on. Data centers and self-storage, both probably pretty good. On the other end of the spectrum, you got it. <laughs> the, the two best performing areas in this latest crisis in the REIT world, if that's an indicator of how they're going to do, have been data centers and self storage and, and tower REITs. Uh-huh. The data center and the tower REITs, the cell phone tower REITs, 
because they're everybody's working at home. You need more data. You need more information. So clearly the asset class of the present and probably the future. Mm-hmm. Self-storage has other metrics related to it, but ultimately people aren't going to be moving around much anytime soon. And so self-storage has a resiliency to it that has almost nothing to do with the business cycles. Uh, and I'm sure it does, and I haven't studied it as closely as the other asset types, but it, it doesn't have the same boom and bust as would retail or hotels are facing today. And so it, self-storage has in resiliency what data centers and cell phone towers are going to have over the long term in terms of demand. Yeah, probably non-correlated booms and busts, totally. Exactly. Maybe one day we'll stop like buying grocery, stuff. Yeah, it's, a, it's kind of like grocery stores are doing great right now. Yep. So let's talk about a couple of kind of bigger picture things. And I have so many clients over the past one, two, three years have said, okay, I can't wait for a pause in the economy. And because I'm, I'm looking for things to calm down a little bit so I can afford to build a building, I can buy a building, I could do a value add. And when there's a recession, we're going to be really happy. Of course, no one is when there really is one because it always comes in a way that we didn't anticipate as we started the conversation. And we haven't really been talking about investment as much as kind of sector by sector resiliency, I guess. But talk about, is this the time to pounce? When will that happen? Will there be an upswing based on opportunisticness? Of course there will be. One of the greatest and the worst human characteristics is greed. Yep. Greed, uh, to, to quote Gordon Gecko, greed works. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's other expressions about that. And that has to do with John Maynard Keynes, the great economist of the left, coined yep. the phrase, when things are going bad, you need to find ways to, quote, unleash the animal spirits, quote, unquote. <laughs> You know, that might have been Adam Smith, but I think it was John Maynard Keynes. But in any event, it says the same thing. Greed will get the economy moving again, no matter how distasteful the term is. But people wanting to make more money, sure, it's going to help find a bottom in the market and bring not only public securities back, but bring private real estate back over some reasonable period of time. Many of the great companies in the real estate business all came out of the end of the prior recession. But if you go back 10, 20, 30 years ago and you see the great corporations of America mm-hmm. and the great real estate owners of America, they change a Absolutely. lot Big time. Uh, every 10 years or so. So you're right. Um, crisis does create opportunity for new entrants into the space. Yeah. So, and let's talk a little bit about the boogeyman here, which might be globalization. And you mentioned before this dichotomy between the good things and the bad things in technology, pros and cons, and it's the same with globalization. So my personal view, it's here to stay. It's going to get more, but there's so many forces fighting it in the world. And this one would say, just put up the fences and the walls. Comments about that. And when we come out the other end, what does, how do we work together across the globe or not? Sure. So when people say globalization, it isn't one thing. It is several things. Mm-hmm. It is the flow of goods. Mm-hmm. It is the flow of money. It is the flow of information. And then it is, there's a political element to it that's unfortunate that things that should be pretty objective, you're either for it or against it in part because of your political leanings, pro or con, right. pro or con. And so a lot of people's opinions on whether globalization is going to get faster or slower aren't necessarily based upon whether more information or money flows or more good flows is a good or a bad thing. It could be politicized like everything else seems to be these days. But let's just be objective about what's going to happen to these three basic elements of globalization, information flows, money flows, and flow of goods and services Mm -hmm. over the next decade, in part as a result of what's happening today with the coronavirus, but also because of other mega trends, most notably the rise in the power of artificial intelligence and cheaper automation, Mm -hmm. uh, but also this rise of protectionism that you're seeing all over the world, the United States, elsewhere where people want to have more goods and services produced and consumed in the country of, uh, of origin. Mm-hmm. And so what do I think is going to happen? I don't think you can stop information flows. I don't think you could stop money flows. And I don't want to. I think money flows are the most important thing. In fact, I think money flows are only going to get more important and faster. And going right back to my original point, one of the things I track with global capital flows very closely or the cost of investing a dollar outside of your home country, which really comes down to things like hedging costs. Mm-hmm. So hedging costs to invest a dollar from the European Union into the United States 
at the height of our 10-year treasury back in November of 2018, used to cost 350 basis points per dollar per year to bring it from Europe to here. So it basically was prohibitive for people from Germany or elsewhere to put a dollar into the United States. But since we've seen the drop in the treasury and the drop of interest rates and the relative equalization of interest rates around the world as the US has essentially dropped ours to zero, those hedging costs have come down and it will increase the amount of capital flows cross border. So here's my fancy argument going right back to Bitcoin. If you had Bitcoin or some other form of non-nationally denominated currency, it would probably, I'm not, going to say I'm a mathematician, it would drop hedging costs to zero, but it would bring them a lot closer to zero Mm -hmm. uh, than it is today, which would increase global capital flows, which would be a good thing from an efficiency standpoint. So right back to your question, is globalization going to get faster or slower? I think it's going to get faster from a capital flow Uh and from an information flow standpoint, but I do think you are going to see more protectionism. And because of the cheapening automation And because of the resiliency factor that we talked about before, about how companies are going to have to be more resilient, you're going to see somewhat of a slowdown in the shipping of goods, certainly the rate of growth. And we've already seen that rate of growth slow down years over the last several years. And you can see that both in the rate of growth Mm -hmm. and you can also see that in the number of goods. Uh, And the key indicator is when you take a look at the price of what is known as a TEU or 20 foot equivalent unit, it used to cost three, four, five thousand dollars per TEU to go from China to San Francisco. Now it's less than half that because of the less volume. And you've seen some major international shipping companies go bankrupt because of less shipping of goods. Hanjin was a South Korean shipping company that went bankrupt a few years ago, and there have been others mm-hmm. because it's already begun slowing down. Mm-hmm. And that this coronavirus thing and the resiliency thing may in fact hasten that slowdown as people want to be more resilient. Makes total sense. And it's interesting, the globalization, another thing that's aligned itself globally, and this gets to politics, I think, is that we have more reaction against globalization or around tariffs and around some protectionism in general around countries. And maybe that shifts around this disease that causes our knowledge that we kind of actually have to work together. Well, look, there's always going to be a pendulum on these things. And I think that, you know, I don't want to belie my pro or con politics on globalization. <laughs> so much of what people believe about globalization has nothing to do with the math, it has to do with these other things. And yep. uh, I'm not going to even get into it. Well, I will talk about pendulum swing in another context in another time. So on Leading Voices, we always talk about careers in real estate. So this has been the first podcast almost in the 60 some odd that we've done where we really focused in on one subject here, which is kind of thinking across the board about the impacts of this current crisis. Tell me about, just think a little bit about advice you might give to a young person thinking about a career in real estate. Would they think about a career in real estate right now? Is it more relevant, less relevant? And then how might they attack that kind of career today versus what you might've said eight months ago? And you're smiling putting aside the fact that everybody is down in the dumps right now because of the issue, but we, we need to look six months out. So yep. six months out or six months ago, right? Assuming this this terrible incident never happened. I love the commercial real estate industry, not just because I'm in it, been in it for 25 years in a variety of roles. I think that there is no industry that has more diverse opportunities from being a analyst in an appraisal group, to being a senior broker, to being an asset manager, to being a property manager. People see real estate and they see a bunch of big big time real estate developers. Mm-hmm. That's less than one-tenth of one percent of our business. Right. The rest of the business are these other areas that can be interesting and they can be dynamic and they can be fun. And what makes it even more fun, and the reason why I'm framing it this way is because we're now competing for the best talent with other industries, which we right. always, have, always have, but it's gotten even more intense than it was before. It used to be that finance and real estate and law were like the places to be. And by the way, I'm an ex-lawyer and an ex-finance guy, so I'm exhibit A. Mm-hmm. But now tech's the place to be because it's hipper, it's cooler, and it's doing more cool stuff. Well, real estate's doing a lot of cool stuff there too. And it's not just prop tech, basically technology that allows you to do your job more effectively. It's also the things that we were talking about, the fluid workspace. The definition of what is commercial real estate and commercial real estate services is continuing to evolve into these ways that I think are just as hip, cool, and fresh as many of these hip, cool, fresh technology companies that are doing some tremendous work. 
So I think it's a place that you can get your foot in the door when you're 20 years old or 22 years old and your first job as an analyst and work until you're till the day you die at 100 years old <laughs> and do 10 different things and they're all fun and they're all dynamic. Now, in the short term, there's a problem as there is in every other industry because of just the distress. But when people get their foot in the door of this industry, what the one piece of advice I give everybody says, I don't care what you do per se in this industry, but I want you to go to your first job, a place where you see as many deals and many transaction types as possible in as short of a time possible and underwrite them all. So that's why when I speak to my real estate friends at colleges, and I speak at colleges all over the United States, I think I did 12 different colleges last year, including several in California. I did UCLA. I did Ohio State. I did Harvard, I did Cornell. I mean, the list is endless. Right. And they all want to do the same thing. They all want to be the junior analyst at a private equity firm. And I'm like, great. That's a great job. You know how many of you are going to get that job? Not that many. But you know what job you can get? You can become a research analyst at, at CBRE or one of our great competitors. You could become a appraiser and you'll underwrite the heck out of deals and you'll know more than that next person who got that job in that big PE firm. And one day you're going to be the boss at one of those PE firms. I could point to more senior executives, more senior brokers who started as a research analyst that started an appraisal and started at, you know, further up the food chain and in the, the perceived further up the food chain on the buy side. And in the buy side is great. I'm not saying it's a bad place to be, but I'm saying there are other options for professionals beyond that that can give them a great foundation for their career. Absolutely. One, one of the things I talk to people about, and it's interesting because the headlines are transactions, and you started with a headline of transactions. Of course, you're in a transactional business and transactional company. But one thing is that where I thought you might go with this is, okay, go to your first job, see as many deals as you can, but it may be that you find yourself wanting to be an asset manager. You may find yourself being more appropriate or your rhythm of life may fit better as a property manager. It may not be a transactional background, even though that's where you think you're going to go. You may be on the development side, which has a huge difference in transactional velocity, right? And, and, you, and you know how you uh, figure out that decision? I tell us to, to young professionals all the time. The most important picture on your wall uh -huh. is your mirror. Mm -hmm. because you need to know what level of risk and reward you're prepared to take. Yeah. Because being a developer is a really, really cool job. Until things go wrong and you've got a personal guarantee, <laughs> that's coming due. Right. Now, being a something that is in another area of the field may not give you as much reward, but you're not quite taking quite as much of uh, a risk. Yeah, but I'll push back on that because not everyone in development is – the developer who's putting their butt on the line in their financial statements, right? There's 20 people helping that person or hundreds of people helping that person from construction to the lender, to the project manager, to the junior project manager. And they're not putting their butt on the line, right? You may be in corporate development, you may be in build to suit. So there's all ways to play that stuff. And not everyone gets to the top of the pyramid. A whole lot of people get either to 80% to the top of the pyramid, which is still pretty good. For sure. And again, comes down to risk reward. What are you prepared to do? I think ultimately it's a wonderful industry to be in because it's so diverse. There's so many great things for people to do and you can change if you want to try something else. Totally true. Okay. Last question. What have we missed in this topic coming back to the current crisis? Any points that you think that we really need to make to strike this conversation home? I'm going to go back to a point I made earlier, but I think it's the most important comment I could make. Okay which is don't get caught up in the heat of the moment. This too shall pass. And our industry is in a wonderful place, including those areas that are most hard hit, like hotels, like retail, um, and secondarily, some of these other areas. And we're going to come back stronger than ever. And I think people should look at the long term, not the short term. And in the short term, they should be gratified or happy or at least comforted by the fact that everybody gets it from the feds to the world central banks to the lenders. And so uh, I've never seen such a kumbaya slash everybody's in this together moment in my career. So I'm proud to be where we are. And um, I think you should be proud to be in the industry as well. Totally agreed. Hey, uh, Spencer, thank you very much. Appreciate this. For our listeners, you've mentioned a couple of articles and your 2030 report on our website at leadingvoicespodcast.com. On this episode, we'll put that uh, links to that in the show notes. Spencer, we will keep talking. I will see you at some point at a conference again, at a cocktail party, because one day we'll be back at them. 
Terrific. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. And um, everybody keep your chin up. This too shall pass. Uh, the, the economy is going to be great. Real estate is going to be great. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Great conversation. I'm going to hit leave meeting, but thank you all, Chris. Thank you. And we will talk. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.